welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. This is episode four of our series of bonus episodes in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. Thank you so much to all you listeners for your feedback so far on this series. And due to popular demand, we will be continuing our partnership with All Tech is Human, producing our Continue the Conversation pages, and releasing new episodes for this series every month. All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. If you are new to this series, the format from these episodes is a little different than our normal episodes, and it features selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event. And in the outro, Jess and I discuss which action items you all can take ways to continue the conversation, and we include resources and our own commentary. Please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event. In this conversation, we explore the topic of building the next generation of responsible technologists and change makers through expert insight from invited guest speakers, Ruman Chowdhury and Yoav Schlesinger. Ruman Chowdhury is the global lead for responsible AI at Accenture Applied Intelligence, where she led the design of the Fairness Tool, a first in-industry algorithmic tool to identify and mitigate bias in AI systems. Ruman also serves as co-chair of the RSA's Citizen AI Jury and actively participates in IEEE Standards Committees, the Partnership on AI, as an advisor to the UK House of Lords Parliamentary Group on AI, and other global AI and ethics organizations. Yoav Schlesinger is principal for the Ethical AI Team for Salesforce. He was previously principal for the Tech and Society Solutions Lab at Omidyar Network, where he was focused on building long-term resiliency and maximizing the tech sector's contributions to society. As always, this conversation was moderated by All Tech is Human's David Ryan Polgar. The organizational partner for this event was The Bridge. And as a personal note from uh, Jess and I, we just thought this was a wonderful conversation for folks like us who are uh, have been recently seeking out mentors in this space and trying to find our own voice in this space. And then also folks uh, like us who have been recently approached by people for mentorship. Uh, so we invite you all, if you have people in your life who are looking into getting into the space, be they students or yourselves, to uh, listen and to share all of the wisdom that is here. And it really is a wonderful conversation and a starting point for folks who are trying to find their space and their voice in this responsible tech or AI ethics space. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Tech is Human with our live stream series that we're doing with The Bridge. If you haven't checked out our partner, The Bridge, check them out at thebridgework.com. But really excited for the conversation that we have today. Uh, what we've noticed uh, over the last two years with the ethical tech summits that we've done is that a lot of college students, grad students, 
and young professionals have asked, how do I get involved in this responsible tech space? So here's what we've done. We've gathered up two leaders in the responsible tech field to talk about their own experiences, uh, what they do in their career and their own background and where they see this responsible tech field going. Really excited to bring on uh, Yoav Schlesinger, who is the Principal Ethical AI Practice at Salesforce. So welcome, Yoav. Thanks. We great, to great to have you here. Uh, it's also great to have Ramon Chowdhury, uh, who is the Responsible AI Lead at Accenture. So Ramon, welcome to our uh, live stream. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, again, I know we, we have a ton of questions that came in. So thank you all for uh, inserting your questions when you signed up on Eventbrite. But also want to mention for everybody joining us today, uh, you can find the, the comment section. If you're joining through YouTube, just uh, type a comment in and we're going to see a bunch of those and insert them uh, onto screen. So to start us off, uh, we, we received a question that was basically saying, okay, both of you have very interesting, intriguing titles, right? So the principal ethical AI practice uh, at Salesforce, responsible AI lead at Accenture. So we're seeing a lot of these newer, newer types of, of titles. Um, the question really is, how do we get those titles? And, and really to understand that, I think we have to understand about each of your backgrounds. So Ramon, we'll start with you. Uh, we received a question talking about what is your academic and career background? And also, can you describe what you do in your position? So I'd love to kind of hear more about your, your journey and then what you do uh, at Accenture. Yeah, um, so I am a quantitative social scientist. My PhD is in political science. Um, I have done stats programming since like, and I'm absolutely just going to date myself because since undergrad, <laughs> in, like late 90s, early 2000s. So um, I, I always like to say I'm not born of tech. So I worked in public policy and nonprofits. I worked as an economist uh, for a while. I worked at a, a small consulting firm, um, creating statistical models for the pharmaceutical industry, all this before my PhD. Um, I went to my PhD at 29 um, for like, and I, I always notice there's always these debates that pop up in conversations around like, when is too old to do anything? And I find this very bizarre um, <laughs> 29 when I went for my PhD. Um, and while I was in my PhD program, I heard about this new job called data science. Um, and to me, that was a quantitative social scientist mm -hmm. because my, if I were to say there's a common theme in all of the jobs I've ever had, whether it's in public policy or, you know, a for-profit consultancy or as an economist, it has always been, I like taking data about human beings and understanding patterns of human behavior. And that to me is what a data scientist does. Um, it, coding is fine. Like I, I didn't, I didn't really get the obsession with uh, programming in Silicon Valley in data within data science uh, over the 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 rigorous social science part of it, like operationalizing variables and understanding, you know, uh, measurement and and all of that stuff, right? If we, for example, if we wanted to figure out if uh, someone should be hired for a job, let's figure out smart ways to determine the metrics we are looking for before we start jumping into some fancy new algorithm, right? Like mm -hmm. that that comes later. Um, so that's sort of a natural lead-in to do something like ethics, because I honestly it wasn't really. I didn't even think about his ethics back then. This is in 2013, 2014. I was just like, you guys just doing this wrong. And I don't <laughs> think that. Um, uh, so I was, you know, frankly, in talking like career paths, um, and David were talking about this before we hopped on, like I probably get two to three emails a week from people asking, how do I do this? 
um, or what my journey was. And frankly, like, I wish I could say there was like some grand design. There really wasn't a grand design to it. I just happened to have literally studied all of the things that enabled me to do this job. My, one of my subfields was political philosophy, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I did my master's in quantitative methods, so stats. And uh, and then my PhD and my under, one of my undergrad degrees was just an understanding like human behavior, social sciences. Um, so I actually was approached by Accenture around 20, like, late 2016, early 2017. Um, and they were the, at that time, the concept of ethics and AI was just this, like, we talked, like people talked a lot about like Terminator and how, frankly, I used to literally have a slide before every talk where I said, there are three things I don't talk about, Terminator, Hal, and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs <laughs> saving the world. Uh, like if I dig back old enough, I can probably still find that slide. Um, and um, so that's how I've, that's where I've been uh, for the past what, over three years, basically three and a half years. Um, it's been a really wild ride because, like I said, it was very early days when I started, and you know, it was really fun to be in this field from the from the ground up. And I, what I really love is how huge it's gotten, how multidisciplinary um, the backgrounds of all the people are, and that's how it should be. That is a sign of a good and thriving industry. So that's, that's my background. That's how I got here. Oh, I think you'd also ask like what I do at Accenture. Um, I really love my job. What I love about my job is I have to solve problems for people. Mm -hmm. um, I work with some of the biggest companies in the world and I help them create responsible AI solutions. And this goes from everything from the early level strategy around uh, how do we develop our principles around ethics, fairness, et cetera. Like, you know, like fundamentally, like, like, like what do these things mean? Um, in an applied sense and not the sort of esoteric, like AI should do no harm, like that's really nice, but I don't know what to do with that, right? Um, and then even to creating solutions. So a few years ago, um, my team and I created the first tool in the market to identify at an enterprise level to identify and mitigate algorithmic bias. That was the fairness tool. Um, and since then, we've developed an entire framework of, of, of an algorithmic assessment. Um, so we deliver technical solutions and we even help companies work on things like um, strategic communication. How do you talk to your employees about the use of artificial intelligence or machine learning models um, and explain to them you know, that you are thinking about ethical use or maybe this isn't the super creepy invasive tech um, that they might imagine it is. Because frankly, often what we find not often, but we have found this enough times is that um, people are very smart about the, the negative impacts of tech, which is great. But then sometimes there's so much confusion around what is and is not AI machine learning and data science that a very simple model that maybe has existed for a very long time um, will be responded to quite negatively at a company um, or maybe externally. And it was due to a lack of good communication about what is and isn't happening. So it's uh, you know, it's it's a it's a lot. It, um, I have 13 global leads. Um, they're all amazing. So um, I work with our government relations people, with policy people, with our internal people and general counsel, legal and compliance. We have an entire arm called responsible business that has nothing to do with me. That's like internal to Accenture. I work with them. So it's just like there's there's a lot. <laughs> it's really there is a lot. Yeah. Well, Yoav, I think this is a good time to to bring in uh, some of your background and then also uh, your your role at at Salesforce. So, could you tell us a little bit about your own journey here? Yeah, uh, like Ruman, my journey is delightfully nonlinear. Uh, <laughs> so, I 
um, sort of stumbled into where I am today. I got my undergraduate degrees in like Vermont political science and religious studies actually, and was interested at the time in sort of the intersection between those two things. So I wrote an undergraduate thesis, uh, um, dating myself as well, Ruman, pre 9-11 on uh, Islamic ethics of war actually, and the use of weapons of mass destruction. I was really interested in that intersection of how communities of people uh, use values, use the rhetoric of um, community, these kinds of things to actually take collective action. And I took that sort of background into the nonprofit world for more than 15 years, thinking about how, again, communities establish normative values and then build community around it. So I worked um, in some religious nonprofits. I was a consultant to nonprofits for nearly five years, helping to do strategy and leadership development, governance, fundraising, these kinds of things. Um, and after that time, frankly, I got tired of asking for money um, and <laughs> wanted to do something else and was thinking about what the next logical step was in taking that values-driven approach to thinking about how to have widespread impact. And I was looking at the landscape and realized that at the time, you know, roughly 2017, like Vermont, I was looking and sort of saying like, tech is having a moment here. Um, it was post 2016 election. There was a lot of conversation about where tech was going and what the responsibility of tech was in terms of impacting society. And I thought, that that seemed like the next next logical step. So I actually took a role at Omidyar Network, which um, is a venture philanthropy created by the founder of eBay and was doing some work in funding and building field thought leadership, et cetera, around responsible technology kind of broadly. Um, and through doing that work, decided that actually some of the interesting stuff would be within a large corporation to really think about how to put these things to the test. And so took a role just about a year ago at Salesforce uh, in the ethical AI practice where we are responsible for amazingly everywhere that AI touches Salesforce products and how our customers are then using those products. So it's kind of a two uh, pronged role. On the internal side, we have our own AI products that require sophisticated thinking around how do we debias these models? What kinds of templates are we shipping to our customers, right? So that they can make responsible decisions. And some of that we call ethics by design. So thinking really about how we build products to make it very easy for our customers to do the right thing and very hard for them to do the wrong thing, hopefully. And then also helping our customers think through the deployment of those products as well. So um, thinking about the creation of responsible models, making appropriate decisions about the uses of those models and that sort of thing. So that's what I do on a daily basis, working with engineers, product teams, um, all those kinds of folks building tech and helping them think through both the positive outcomes of building that tech as well as some of the negative uh, possible consequences and building features and products that mitigate those consequences to the extent possible. So both of you, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned the term uh, delightfully nonlinear, but both of you, I would, I would say, uh, fall, fall under that. Um, I guess the question I have is, is something that I receive a lot on my own end is uh, people might ask how I, you know, got into to this field as well. Uh, and a lot of times my answer is 
usually through brute force or just kind of pushing it itself. Uh, I had one person push back recently and they said, well, isn't that a, a decent level of privilege? Uh, maybe something about your background made that more likely to happen. And I think right now we have a lot of people who are looking for the actual uh, legitimate kind of direct pathways. We received a question uh, earlier where it said, Ramon, I'd like to address this uh, to you if I can. Uh, the question is, can you address how people of color and women can overcome any, any barriers to becoming the next generation of technologists and change makers? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. Um, it, it, so it, it, it dovetails really nice to what you were talking about with privilege. Um, to be honest, because I'm South Asian, I frankly think that I come from a massive amount of privilege in tech. Um, I think that this is going to sound very strange. My brownness uh, cancels out my womanness, mm -hmm. um, so that people don't. And because I have all of the degrees from all of the schools, um, I don't get as often directly challenged. I will say I get a lot of the weird oblique questions, like, "So who's your technical lead?" I'm like, "Oh, me." Is my master's in stats and my two undergrad degrees from MIT not enough for you and my <laughs> quantitative methods? Okay. Um, and you get a lot of those weird, like, oblique questions. Um, is there an easy way? No. Is there an institutionalized way? No, to be honest. I mean, it's been great to see a lot more commitment from leadership. Um, but I don't, I don't really know what any of that means. I've, I have always worked in very actually for quite male dominated industries, even in within nonprofits, because I always worked as an analyst or like a quant person. And that's usually not where there are mainly a lot of women. Um, I, 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 I wish I had a really good answer. Um, I, I guess what I'd say is I personally feel a strong sense of responsibility as a woman in leadership to help people and advise people and especially young women who want to get into the field. Um, Certainly the concept of mentorship didn't really exist in my early career. Um, and you know, maybe I could have benefited from it. I don't know, I think I ended up okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I wish I had a, an easy or a good answer for that. And the answer is really there, there is none. Uh, unfortunately, you have to be better and you have to be smarter and you just have to literally work harder. Um, and it, it's shitty, but <laughs> uh, that's, that's literally how it is. Well, I'm going to Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and, but hopefully for those of us, there are more and more women in leadership. And for mm -hmm. a lot of us, um, you know, our, our way of working with diversity and inclusion is not just or not necessarily to go to all the big events or whatever, but it's to do what we can for the people around us who aren't being heard, no matter who they are. Well, I guess that's a good time. I'm going to bring up this comment that we just received on this, right? From Claire, how do you overcome the pretty thin lines of pattern recognition for folks hiring into roles into these domains? Uh, so do you have anything to, to add on that, right? Are you seeing uh, pretty thin lines of, of pattern recognition for folks hiring into these roles? And, and really kind of what responsibility do you think uh, some of those individuals might, might have? I'm not exactly sure what the question is that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's looking at the the individuals who are hiring for this, right? Uh, if you if you kind of look at at some of the uh, people involved in responsible tech, they they seem to come from similar uh, similar backgrounds, or maybe there's pathways, or maybe they have a lot of experience in um, certain other previous companies or organizations. 
do you think that has a, a role in kind of locking in some of the uh, some of the problems that that others might find in breaking into this field? Um, in responsible, I, I actually really don't think that one thing I love about this field is that there are so many people from so many different backgrounds. Um, I feel like it's one of the the few places that I have talked to such a wide range of people. Um, one of my favorite people to talk to, um, you know, is Chris Gilliard, for example, who mm -hmm. is a community college teacher. I think a lot of people who know him on Twitter know of him as like the person who like talks a lot about the failures of ed tech and you probably think of him as a responsible tech person but his day job that pays is and he just got a fellowship with the a much deserved fellowship with the harvard shorenstein center but he's a community college teacher um mm -hmm. that's what i love about this field that that we are welcoming we do want people with lots of different backgrounds and and maybe the narrative does get dominated because frankly yes the big tech firms are hiring more and more people in the field of ethics but i do think that there's an incredibly rich um, civic community around responsible technology. And David, I think All Tech is Human is about to come out with a really big report yeah. um, that's outlining some of those places to work. So, and, and I guess what I'd add to that is, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna tell you all like a, a little bit of a secret about myself, which is that I have never uh, actively applied to work at one of the big tech firms because I never wanted to work at one of the big tech firms. When I left college, everybody was going into investment banking and. I was probably the only person I know who didn't apply to go work at Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. Um, and there's something obviously I work at Accenture now, but I, I had a bit of a like a moment with myself where I had always wanted to work at small companies. I never wanted like the recognition of a big name firm on my resume. Mm -hmm. And I ended up just fine, to be perfectly honest. And I think I do better at my job because I, you know, I didn't necessarily choose the most obvious path. And I do appreciate that there's a massive amount of privilege in that. Um, but I also will add that, you know, res uh, the responsible tech field has a lot of different avenues that you can pursue, um, you know, if your goal isn't necessarily to be recognized by one of the big firms. Well, uh, I, I saw a lot of comments and then, uh, Ramon, you also mentioned uh, mentorship. So let's let's uh, transition into that. And you have I'll, I'll bring this over to you. What do you see? Uh, as the role for for mentors, and I, and I think it'd also be interesting to hear if both of you uh, had had mentors that helped you out uh, on your rise in the responsible tech field. Um, but I but I guess I, we probably have a lot of uh, the audience curious about how they can find their own mentors or how you might recommend them going about doing this. Yeah, so. Uh... I like to think about mentorship plus championship, right? And um, championship being even once um, someone's within a company, right? Being even that much more critical of helping someone on their career path and trajectory and that sort of thing. Um, we have a lot of folks at Salesforce, and that's really the only experience I can speak to directly, who actually work with interested folks, whether undergraduates, whether graduate students, et cetera. You know, I know product managers who've just taken uh, of their own volition to work with a student they met at a conference who's interested in, you know, doing some debiasing of image recognition and have they worked with those students to think about building projects, to testing their models, you know, these kinds of things, um, and really helping them to develop technical skills as well as more fluency in the work that they're doing. Uh, that is 
critical and ties directly to the conversation you were just having right around pathways in particularly for people of color and for women, et cetera. Um, I think being able to develop those connections to people in the field is really critical. You know, I don't think responsible technology or ethical AI or anything is all that much different than any other field, frankly, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the necessity for networks um, and building those networks, making them more robust and resilient to the extent possible, uh, because that tends to be, frankly, um, how people find meaningful work a lot of the time, right? By knowing someone, it's it's not that frequent that someone sends in a cold resume online to a job posting and gets hired into that job, it, right? Unfortunately, that's the reality in which we live. And so um, it becomes all that much more critical to Ramon's point of working harder to reach out, to make those connections, to build it and to ask proactively for that mentorship, frankly. Um, you can't, I don't think, necessarily expect someone to just know that you are desirous of having that kind of mentorship and having that kind of relationship. Um, you know, um, and so demonstrating that interest, that hunger, that desire, the, the real um, craving to work in the field will go a long way and then putting in the work to doing it. Yeah, I mean, what I, I agree. And what I'd add to this, this is maybe like the New Yorker in me coming out. Um, <laughs> what's the most helpful to me when someone reaches out for mentorship? Because sometimes I actually don't really know what that means. Because um, you were asking earlier, David, like, did we have men? I, I didn't. Okay. Uh, it was not a thing. <laughs> I'm going to be perfectly frank. It was not a thing. Uh, it was not a thing until pretty recently. And then when I initially got asked for mentorship, I'm like, I actually don't know what you want. Like, I'll hop on this call, but like, I don't know what you want. Um, and what I've had happen a few times, and, you know, and I feel bad because I want to help people is, you know, some people come on and we have this really wonderful conversation about like life and, you know, I can talk to people for hours and it's great, but, you know, I genuinely don't know like what help it is to them. So one thing that usually helps me, um, and actually recently did this on a panel with at UCSD, which is my PhD alma mater, like, so like, if you want like a pathway on like how to go about mentorship from a mentee perspective, number one, like, don't be afraid to reach out to people, like reach out to like anyone and everyone, even if they seem unapproachable. But what, what I would say is number one, email them. Number two, email them again, because they probably lost your email and intended to even respond and then forgot. And then don't take it personally because they're like drowning in Zoom calls. Um, email them again, like nicely be like, hey, I sent you this email, would you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's always helpful to have a bit of background about you, like who you are, like why you're interested in talking to them. And specifically, like here are the two or three things that I think you, like I want to talk to you, Ramon, because you do X or you have a background in X. And then that helps me like work that part of my brain to like get that part going to think about all the resources I may have over there. Um, and then, you know, we have the call and then we talk about the things that you listed in your email. And then afterwards, it's always helpful to like, and I will always do my best to like follow up with specific resources, but in case like the person doesn't, just send them a little bit of a reminder. Like, frankly, like you're not being annoying. I, I think often when I've talked to people, um, especially younger people, they think they're being annoying um, and you're not. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think they are because usually I'm apologizing because I just like completely forgotten three weeks past, right? And I'm always happy to have a reminder, like, hey, that person that you wanted to connect me to, like, can you do that? And, and I'm, I'm always happy to do that. Um, but, you know, like, 
the, the, the part I, I'd add to like utilizing people's resources is, you know, we are also putting our reputation on the line for somebody, right? So we want both sides, like, we'll, I mean, I'll do my work and I definitely want the other person to do their work too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's more likely to be a successful relationship as a mentor mentee if, you know, it's really clear to the mentor what will help, what will help you. Um, and that's really, I think the best way to go about doing it. Roman, uh, earlier, uh, I think in your your kind of intro, you mentioned kind of the the classic Terminator problem that hey, you don't want to talk about Terminator, but that's something that we oftentimes do. Well, well, we're not. I'm not going to ask you about the Terminator, but what I'm going to use that for is a lot of the, the complication of these thorny tech society issues are are less uh, less easily identifiable, like the Terminator. Right? It's not a robot that's knocking down my door. It's something that's altering my human condition or altering the, the, how I communicate or the people that I hang out with or even the world that I conceive of, right? Um, one of the questions we received, which is coming up a lot, uh, the question is, how can I have a voice in the ethical tech space if I'm not a technical uh, person, but am passionate about tech that amplifies the best rather than the worst uh, of humanity? And what I'd like to tack on to that is, it seems like we might need more social problem solvers, not just technical problem solvers. Uh, what what role do these individuals have to play, and then how do you think they can get involved in this uh, in this field? Yeah, um, I think the best thing is to, and, and I would give this advice by the way to anybody who's trying to go into any industry. Because before people asked me about getting into responsible tech, they asked me about getting into data science. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's my. Uh, you probably hear a bunch of noise. Sorry about that. Um, so what what the, what I always say is your background is very valuable, no matter what job you're getting. So when I one of the questions I used to be asked is how do you move? How did you move from political science into data science? Because those seem totally different. To me, it didn't seem totally different. So I just leveraged the best of what I had done in political science, which is do a lot of work in understanding how to build algorithms. Frankly, right? Um, so I was a I was a quant um, and you know, leverage that within data science. So my answer would be, what is your background? What are you good at and what have you studied and how does that relate to responsible tech? Then I would say, go find an organization that is working along those lines or has something that they're building um, that could use your skill set and just reach out to them. Because a lot of these organizations are still pretty small and they're, they're, looking for, uh, they're looking for really smart, really good people to help them out. I guess uh, the next question, I'll, I'll bring this uh, this point up where uh, Andrew w- was talking about going from the private sector to the public sector, uh, more on the political side and mentioning uh, different fellowships such as uh, Tech Congress. Uh, would like to kind of extend also with that question is it, it seems like there's many different ways for people to influence how technology is developed and deployed. What, it can be inside of larger companies like both of you are doing or it can be outside of it, more the more the public sphere. Um, what are the different areas of, of influence that you, you see a need for in, re, in responsible tech? I mean, where would you like uh, more individuals to, to get involved? Yeah, you know, um, it, it's funny because, it, you know, I am, in response to the last question, I, I'm like the least technical person you will ever likely to meet in this field. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I, I dropped out of intro to programming um, in my undergraduate. I just didn't do it. I wasn't interested. I was 
humanities. We're getting all the secrets on this live stream. I yeah, like it. I like um, it. So I, uh, I think that the need for people who are non-technical, who are doing things like the question suggests, right, of informing policymakers about the issue, the societal issues, it's critical. Um, you know, Congress is getting slightly better. Um, if you looked at the antitrust hearings, just I guess it was last month, the questioning was better than it was two years ago. But clearly, there's a need for policymakers to better understand technology and the issues that it's having impact on in society. Uh, clearly, there is a need for advocacy around these issues, both in civil society as well as the nonprofit space that are taking action on these issues. Clearly, there is a need for um, a heavy lift in terms of the uh, work that needs to be done to remediate these issues themselves, right? So whether that's in environmental impacts, whether that's in housing impacts, uh, future of work, there's so many issues, right, that are implicated by the negative impacts of technology that if you're interested in thinking about how those things are being deployed and uh, and amplified, then there's definitely work to be done, regardless of your background and regardless of um, specifically like where you want to plug in. There's just an infinite number of places that you can plug in because actually implicated by this is kind of everything, right? So you can find your niche and you can find um, not just at the core of technology, but if there's something else that you want to bring and draw that connective tissue to another issue, then the uh, uh, opportunities amplify even that much more. Do you think yeah, we would, need, would, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, I would agree. And if anything, if you wanna go into policy, uh, like responsible AI and policy, it is the right time to do it. I think more and more politicians are aware. They wanna get smart. Um, the biggest thing they need is education. Uh, there are not enough, not like, um, like, unbiased, I would say. Unbiased is the wrong word for it, but like basically right now they're getting advised about technology by the very same companies that they would regulate. And they are desperately looking for organizations and groups and individuals who are smart on technology, um, who are able to advise them on the implications of it. So if you do have a background in technology, but especially in having a, have a bit of an understanding of how policy works, like it is the best time to be entering. I can think of like eight organizations just in the last year who have been hiring either a director of policy or have been very aggressively building out their policy team. Wonderful. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of great organizations. I think somebody mentioned Tech Congress. Also, uh, Aspen Tech Policy Hub uh, is, is training a lot of uh, individuals on uh, on this as well. Um, let's get into uh, a few more specific questions, though, about your your role, uh, your roles at uh, Salesforce and Accenture. I have a question that that came in right here, talking about your own specific uh, ethics. Uh, where do you draw your ethics values from for decision making? How do you balance your personal ethics against your company's definition of ethics or other communities' ethics? So uh, you have a Ramana, whoever wants to jump in there first can can have first dibs at the the question. I know this this comes up uh, frequently as well. Yeah, I'll I'll start because it's actually a really big conversation. When I I first started my job, um, my title of like responsible AI lead was different because most people have the title of ethical. Um, and specifically, we chose responsible because it's actually not my job to impose my moral framework to, onto somebody else. 
I actually feel really strongly about just in general in life, but then also even as a company. Um, so then, of course, what happens when you run into a situation where an organization has an ethical framework that is not in alignment with yours? Um, frankly, I back out. Uh, I just I just wouldn't do it. Um, and I've been very lucky at Accenture that you know, like I I've been you know quite principled, I suppose, with that. But also, our leadership really does support. Um, so I guess in, in thinking of some of the questions that people were talking about earlier, like how do we get in, like how do we get the support, like to be honest, a lot of it is just like what is the support you're going to get from leadership because you can't fight a one-way battle, um, and if it feels like a one-way battle, you're in the wrong place and find the place that suits you. Um, Accenture has been very supportive of me, it, and I haven't really been in the situation a ton, but you know there have been some, some times where I've backed out of doing things. Um, because I, I didn't, I didn't think it would go in the right direction or the direction I wanted it to go in. Um, but first, I'd say like it's actually not my job to impose my moral framework on another company. But my job is to, is to help them identify, and most of them have identified their moral compass. But think about their moral compass as it applies to emerging technology and artificial intelligence. But second, if you know, if I did think that a company was trying to pursue ethics washing, et cetera, I, I would just back out. And the one thing I'd say, especially about, I can't speak for the companies, I can only speak for Accenture, and not just from an ethical perspective, but from a, like, ethics predates technology in a sense where ethics has existed in legal and compliance for quite some time, right? Whether we're talking about Sarbanes-Oxley or the 2008 financial crisis, um, Accenture has definitely been in a position where we have said no to clients. We say no, you know, frequently enough because of not just purely legal and compliance reasons, but ethical reasons as well. So I'm not asking for something incredibly radical. It just has to be justified and not just like, I don't feel like it. Um, it has to be justified in terms of, I just, I don't think this is a smart move for the company. Um, I don't think necessarily maybe we should be working on this project or with this uh, client. As long as I have a, a smart, you know, and well thought through way of framing it, um, I have not really run into major issues before. Yeah, I find the term ethics, even yeah, though yeah. I carry the title, um, I find the term ethics really distracting and the conversation not particularly productive in some way when debating whose ethics, what ethics, et cetera. Um, you know, the last thing, frankly, I would want to do is try to train Salesforce employees to recognize the difference between deontological utilitarian and consequentialist ethics and unpack Kant. Like that's not helpful, right? It, what is helpful is getting better at risk spotting and then thinking carefully, critically, thoughtfully about how to mitigate those risks, right? At some fundamental level, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about doing ethics, right? Mm -hmm. um, at least in the context in which I operate. Um, it's not necessarily applying some moral framework as much as it is understanding how could this negatively impact a person? How could this negatively impact a community, a, you know, the underserved in some way? And once you've identified that risk, the ethics is about preventing that negative consequence, right? So um, I, I think that my ethics versus the company's ethics really align when we're talking about just preventing bad things from happening. The the topic I wanted to bring up, uh, and I'll start with you, Rahman, is that uh, in order to see these, these risks, we oftentimes need to have a variety of backgrounds. And everybody with their own background has 
their uh, their blind spots, if you will. Uh, we had Jack Dorsey recently come out saying that uh, you know he should have hired a sociologist as one of his first hires uh, when creating uh, Twitter. Uh, what are you seeing from your end in terms of backgrounds? Where wh what backgrounds do you think we need more of if we're going to, as you have talked about, if we're going to increase the risk spotting? Um. So I, I guess if I were to take a step back, what I'd say is there is and will never be a single person that has all the skill sets for this job. And the and interestingly, it's quite akin to data science. Um, and the example I used to give in data science that I now give in responsible tech is, remember in the 90s when there used to be a job called webmaster and one person had to manage, and everyone always laughs because we all, like, if you are old yeah. enough, you remember this, like a single person used to have to manage the like the concept is mind-boggling today because we have armies of people little armies at companies managing a website and if you went back to like 1998 and said hey you know like expedia you need more than just a webmaster they'd be like no 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 we we, we hired we hired a web guy like the web guy does this you know um and it was always a web guy right um and that's kind of where responsible AI is today. Like, I, I think it's it's not that it's a silly conversation, but like, of course, it needs uh, different kinds of people because any sort of complex task needs different kinds of people. Just like, you know, building a website, frankly, sounds much more simpler than identifying ethical issues in artificial intelligence. And yet, you need an army to do it because you need people who understand the back end, the front end. There's 18 different types of technologies to learn and need to be good, someone who's good at design and someone who just understands color palettes, right? And that's kind of how responsible AI is. We need, we need folks that understand, you know, human behavior. We need folks that understand giant social movements. We need people who understand what a socio-technical system is. We need people who understand meta-level movements. We need people who've studied innovation theory, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then we need, then we also need the technical folks. One thing I do want to highlight is that I actually think there aren't enough technical folks in responsible technology. I wish there were more. Uh, I, I genuinely say that sometimes I am actually often the only data scientist. Um, and there are a lot of young data scientists that are really, and I'm really enthusiastic and super happy to see that. What I would love to see is more data science leadership working seriously on responsible AI. Um, and and th there are definitely a lot of really great folks out there. But what I'd love to see is actually just more engineers having this conversation in a meaningful manner. Uh, more data scientists having this conversation in a meaningful manner. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I couldn't even begin to list the different kinds of people that are, are needed. Uh, if I were to say, like, what is needed right now? Um, one big thing that is needed right now is just people who are able to translate and educate. Um, so somebody who I really love talking to is Ben Olson, who's at Facebook now, who's at Microsoft previously. And, you know, Ben's career has largely been around creating education for responsibly. And he and I have this conversation a lot. Well, even just to understand the problems, frame the problems, understand the tools, figure out how to answer the question is actually a deep mystery to a lot of people. A lot of folks think responsible AI is like, kind of like a feel good, like AI for good moment. And this is not to like denigrate the people doing AI for good, uh, but this is to say that like I see responsible technology specifically what I do as about changing core business functions, how business works. I don't do like charitable AI because we have an entire corporate social responsibility arm that does it, right? So even just understanding what the field is, 
that that's what I would say is the, the biggest fire to put out now. And and you have you're absolutely correct. Like identifying problems, you know, uh, and being more proactive instead of reactive. We're still in a very reactive state where something blows up and then we're all kind of running at this fire, which let me tell you, after three and a half years, it's really freaking exhausting. Uh, I, we do need more systems in place. So all the different kinds of people who'd be involved in that kind of thing, that's what we need. Well, the question uh, I'm going to bring up, and you know, this would be uh, for you, because I think it's related to some of the new positions at uh, Salesforce. Uh, how are ethics officers different from the more traditional role of a compliance uh, officer? How do you interact with your company's compliance officers? And what distinguishes you from them? Uh, that, that seems to come up a lot, right? Uh, a lot of people are almost upset sometimes uh, if they think that that ethics will will go into exactly what compliance has done as opposed to maybe something a little different. So do you have anything you'd like to, to kind of add on that uh, question? Yeah, so at Salesforce, um, compliance and responsible technology are two totally different uh, initiatives. So compliance for us lives in the legal function and ethics actually lives under what we call our office of equality. Uh, equality is a core value at Salesforce, one of our four. And so our chief ethical and humane use officer, um, and I think we may be one of the only companies in Silicon Valley that has someone who carries that title, speaking of um, titles that people want to have um, or are aspiring to, uh, reports to our chief equality officer. And so our uh, ethics function for us when thinking about technology is an entirely different enterprise than thinking about compliance. Compliance is legal requirements. Compliance is, uh, you know, um, how we think about working with uh, government entities, you know, GDPR compliance, all those kinds of things. And that lives with legal. We think about product um, and we think about how, and so actually live within our tech and product organization as a result um, and thinking about how our products are built. So they're uh, never the twain shall meet, actually. Uh, we, we collaborate closely, obviously, because there are a lot of overlaps between legal um, and ethical, right? The legal profession has a deep ethical tradition as well. Um, and so collaborate closely, but they are, in fact, different for us. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the time uh, and we are kind of nearing the end. So for, for both of you, I'd just like to hear uh, any final thoughts you might have specifically about the people uh, who want to get more involved in the space and maybe are feeling like they, uh, they want better opportunities to get plugged in. Um, and then also, uh, lastly, where people can stay in touch with you, uh, whether it be on Twitter or, or elsewhere. So uh, Ramon, I'll, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, if people want to get involved, what I'd say is, I mean, for one, you can always email me um, and then email me again. <laughs> um, two would be, I, I actually think there's this really rich social media community on Twitter around ethics and tech and every single person I have met or talked to from Twitter that I've, most of whom I've now met in real life, would always be incredibly open to talking to, to people trying to break into the industry. Um, we want more people talking about this. We, we love the idea. Um, and then, and I guess to segue into how to follow me, I do have a website, which I'm really bad at maintaining. Um, but you can also follow me on Twitter. Um, you can just look for my handle. Good. And then we'll also uh, follow up uh, with the email for all registered kind of attendees with uh, your specific kind of uh, Twitter handles and anywhere else. So, Yoth, uh, what about uh, yourself? Any, any final thoughts and where people can stay in touch with you? 
Yeah. So I would say that to the extent possible, go to things, right? Because um, uh, even virtually now, um, it will increase your learning, it will increase your network, it will increase your exposure, your knowledge of the field, et cetera. So um, academic conferences, events like the ones that All Tech is Human puts on, um, these kinds of events will generate activity if you're looking to break into the field. You'll know who the right people are who are interested in the same things you are to reach out to, as Ruman mentioned. Um, so I think that's critical. And and the barriers to doing that right now are lower than they've ever been. You don't have to travel. Conference free fees are lower than they've ever been um, because it's all virtual. So I think that's a really good place for people to start. Uh, and then in terms of staying in touch, Twitter, Weiss Lessinger, uh, and would love to be involved in those conversations in the social media space, as Ramon mentioned. Thank you as always to David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Ruman and Yoav's expertise on this subject. The live stream may be over, but there are many ways that each of us can take action. We are going to debrief our biggest takeaways from the live stream, including specific actions that you as listeners can take and resources to continue the conversation. So starting off the conversation with action items for anyone who is actively seeking mentorship in this space. First, start by making connections with anyone and everyone in the field. Ask proactively for mentorship from others. Don't expect them to come to you. And if you are reaching out to someone for mentorship, don't be afraid to email them more than once. You are not being annoying. Utilize other people's resources. Ask someone to introduce you to others in the field. And also, don't take it personally if they don't get back to you. So for folks who may already be in a position where they're no longer seeking mentorship, uh, an action item for you all is to become a mentor for someone else. If you have information or if you have a uh, position and knowledge that you want to share, then go forth and share it. You know, Figure out what you have expertise in and be willing to share your knowledge with others who want to get into your field. And be clear with yourself about what you can offer, what your boundaries are, and ways that you can uniquely contribute to sharing that knowledge with folks who are coming up in this field uh, and figuring out what partnership feels right and feels good for you. Some action items for people who are in the tech industry. First, ask yourself what your personal ethics and values are. And make sure that you understand what the ethics and values of the company or organization that you are looking to work for or are actively working for are. It's probably a red flag if your values don't align with the organizations. Also, don't be afraid to say no. When it comes to tech ethics, don't think that you need to be an expert in moral philosophy in order to begin making an impact on tech ethics in your company. Instead, you can begin wherever you are perhaps just by focusing on risk spotting and risk mitigation. In fact, ask yourself, how can we ethically speculate about the risks of our technology in order to best mitigate them in a responsible and intentional way? If you are an engineer or a coder, start having conversations about responsible technology. If you're interested in becoming an engineering leader, emphasize the importance of responsible tech on your team and also encourage data scientists especially to get interested in and passionate about responsible tech.
for non-coders who are passionate about responsible technology, and this is a category that I fall into as a non-technologist, but someone who really wants to have a voice in this space, some of the action items are to seek out resources to understand the basics of algorithms and the software industry. And check out our list on our Continue the Conversation page for more specific resources on that. I know when I was coming up in this industry, it was really important for me to just listen to as many podcasts about things I didn't understand about machine learning as possible. And that is one way to uh, begin to get your grounding in this space. Another action item is to apply for positions at organizations and to apply for fellowships that are looking for social scientists to do interdisciplinary work. Perhaps find a specific issue or topic that interests you and become an expert on that topic. And this will make your application more appealing to those who are hiring for non-technical positions. From this conversation, it's clear that what is needed right now is people who can translate and educate. So find out what your own specific voice and your own specific talent is and perspective is and figure out a way to translate that to folks who may not necessarily understand how that specialty might uh, have positive implications to either design or AI technology or technology in general. Finally, start to attend conferences that emphasize responsible tech. Begin to be a part of the conversation. Get on Twitter. There's a huge responsible tech community out there. It's one of the reasons why Jess and I have uh, been able to have a voice in the first place here is because that community has been so supportive. But in order to be a part of that community, you need to be a part of that community. So make sure that you're able to be brave and courageous and assert what you need to folks because people won't know what you need or even that you exist unless you tell them that you exist. So begin being a part of that community that's already out there and wants to support you if you put yourself out there to be supported. And as always, the conversation does not stop here. For each of the episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website, radicalai.org backslash continue dash the dash conversation. For each episode, you can find the entire comprehensive list of action items that we just summarized, as well as all of the annotated resources that were mentioned or not mentioned by the guest speakers during the live stream. Different ways to get involved, relevant books, media, publications, and educational resources. If you have ideas for resources to include, we invite you to share them on our Continue the Conversation page as well as a comment. Our goal here is to build a space together that helps us raise awareness and take action. So the conversation doesn't stop here, and we would love to hear from you. For more information on today's show, please visit that Continue the Conversation page at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod, and we'll catch you on Wednesdays for our weekly episodes. As always, stay radical. <laughs>